If you have your Bibles, go with me to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. We in verses 17 through 19. Hebrews chapter 13. We've been in this series. This is week three out of four. Talking about broken shepherds for God's broken people. If you've missed the first two weeks, I'd encourage you to, to jump on those and listen. We're doing expository sermons on selected passages in a more topical series called Broken Shepherds for God's Broken People. So today our text will be in the whole time. will be chapter 13, verse 17 through 19. So let me read for you this morning. He says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you sooner. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we must first declare to you our utter neediness. The fact that we cannot do this on our own. That your very declaration and design of leadership in the church and in our lives. The fact that you've given us shepherds and elders to guide us and protect us and lead us. Tells us that we are not capable of persevering to the end on our own. It tells us that we don't understand the word perfectly always. It tells us that we don't apply the word perfectly always. It tells us that we have wayward hearts and lives that want to go in the wrong direction all the time. We have hearts that are prone to wander. We have eyes that are blinded to our own sin. You've given us shepherds, elders, pastors, overseers to help. And they are necessary, vital even. But may you show us grace during this time. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Such a beautiful passage here in Hebrews. Hebrews is a massive letter that explains so much rich doctrine. And yet, it's one of the most practically helpful books in the Bible. Especially practical and helpful when it comes to the local church. You're familiar with such passages as, as spurring each other on to love and kindness. We repeat much of Hebrews in our own church covenant. It has many pastoral and congregational implications all throughout the book of Hebrews. It shouldn't be a surprise that, just like the book of Ephesians, such a doctrinally rich letter, that the relationship between broken people and their broken elders would be addressed. That the idea that such rich doctrine would play itself out and have implications and applications for the nitty-gritty of everyday life. In Hebrews, the doctrine of Christ, particularly the priesthood of Christ, is at the forefront. 
And the author of Hebrews is searching for anything that would keep you and myself from living the doctrine out. Not trusting and living out the value of following spiritual leaders, particularly elders, would be such an example. This relationship between elders and sheep, shepherds and sheep, has to be fought for actively. The the purpose and the value, the God's graciousness in this relationship will not just happen by passively walking. One thing that I read this week, an author pointed out, it's very helpful, is that you need to understand that this relationship, the relationship between a church and its elders, sets the tone for your Christian growth and development. It sets the tone for your life and your development as a follower of Jesus Christ. I would even argue that if you, again, you read starting in Genesis and you work your way through how does God use shepherds and priests and how does He use His leaders all throughout from Genesis to Revelation, you will see that it's not just preferences that are at stake. It's not power in the church or a seat at the table that's at stake. It's your very own perseverance and salvation that's at stake. That's what's at risk in not understanding, not living, not loving, not working this out practically every day. A little bit of context. In this local church, and Hebrews, as he's writing this letter, it seems that some people were not happy with the leaders, not happy with following the leaders. There seems to be, again, go, go read it, seems to be no indication of those leaders forsaking any of the responsibilities that we're going to talk about today. If you read earlier in verse in chapter 13, he says there, imitate their faith. And now he exhorts the same people to follow the current leaders. That's the context in which we set in this morning. Again, the main point of the book of Hebrews, like the, the big picture, if you will, that Hebrews is trying to paint, is this priestly ministry of Christ. That his care for his people as their priests, that he is reigning, that he is observing, that he is guiding, he is protecting, he is supplying, he is the, uh, the intercessor for his people. He is working in between them and God. And, and understand that if that's the, the context of Hebrews, that is the, if you will, the doctrinal point of Hebrews then every point of application and implication is in light of that doctrine. So, let me work it the other direction for you. That means that if we struggle to live out the points of application in Hebrews, it's because we don't understand, we don't get, we don't love, or we're just flat out rejecting the doctrine that's being presented. So the doctrine of the priesthood of Christ is the root of understanding why or why do I not understand and live out well this relationship between elders and the church and every other point of application in this. Why do you think the spurn each other on to love and good deeds? What's, the, what's going on there? It's the picture of Christ as the priest spurring the people on to love and good deeds. So if you live in the body of Christ and you're not spurring others on to love and good deeds, it means that you don't understand or enjoy or are rejecting the spurring on of Christ and His toward for you towards love and good deeds. So both of these exhortations and all of them but particularly these two, as we think about imitating their faith, and then this passage particularly, obeying and submitting, so on and so forth, have a connection. They point 
to the connection between Christ's priestly ministry and its application to daily life. If you want to write down something, it's rather long, but a person who knows Christ's priestly ministry will joyfully seek to place themselves wholly under the authoritative care of elders. Let me say that again. A person who knows Christ's priestly ministry will joyfully seek to place themselves wholly under the authoritative care of elders. If you struggle with placing yourself under the authoritative care of elders, you struggle with Christ's priestly ministry. Right? The only reason that he is saying that because of Christ's priestly ministry, this is how you are to live. Might put it this way elders are the hands and feet of Christ's priestly ministry to the church. Yes, Peter talks about we are all priests, a royal priesthood, and so we all have roles of this in each other's lives. But the elders are the lead ones in this task. They're the ones equipping those other people to spur one another on to do the priestly ministry of Christ. So let's talk about what does this look like then? What is, what is this? I actually had a title today like Experiencing the Priesthood of Christ, like the priestly ministry of Christ. So what does that look like? What does it look like to experience the priestly ministry of Christ in the local church? Our first point today, elders must faithfully exercise God's authoritative care for His people. Must faithfully exercise God's authoritative care for His people. This first part, I'm going to describe for you from Hebrews 13, the relationship, the the role, the responsibilities, if you will, of elders in this relationship. So here's the question. Who are the leaders, first of all? Who are the leaders? What's he talking about? Who is he talking to? Well, the idea of leaders there, it's actually a participle, meaning the ones leading you. These leaders, if you look at the broader context, were Uh, involved in governing, teaching, and shepherding the church. Sounds a lot like a plurality of elders to me. I think he is talking primarily about elders, but I don't think he's limiting it to elders. So I would say there's application here to some level of DNA leaders, particularly. Some house gathering leaders. There's application, because these are spiritual leaders in your life. But I think he's primarily talking about elders. I want to paint for you a picture of faithful exercise of God's authoritative care. If you're not, we've used the word authoritative care. I think that encapsulates this role and what God is accomplishing through elders at this point. We used that phrase back when we were talking about God's authoritative care through a husband as he leads the house. It's the same, similar concept here. So I want to paint for you this picture. I'm going to give you like four examples from this text. Uh, well, three rather. Of what does this care look like from elders? What is, it, what is it supposed to look like? First of all is this. Elders are watchful for error thrown upon the church. Elders are to watch for error thrown upon the church. You've got to understand, a lot of these have like kind of two aspects to it, right? One is like the church corporately, but also is like individuals. Like watching out for this person, that error is not being thrown upon them, and that they're giving way to this error. So let me give you an example. Let me give you an example. Christian identity in our culture today is wrapped up with republicanism and cultural conservatism. I'm going to make some friends, okay? To be a Christian, you've got to toe the party line. And if you don't wear red, then somehow 
you're not a Christian. That Christianity and republicanism, it's, it's all the same thing. That the red politics and the red blood of Jesus are somehow the same thing. Now, now for the record, I'm not telling you which way to vote. I'm not t- I, I, I tend to vote that direction as well. But, what's, but the problem, the error that is being thrown upon the church is that our identity is somehow wrapped up in that aisle, on that side of the aisle of politics. And maybe for a time in our country that those, those ideals or those ideologies in that party were similar to that of Jesus Christ. That is changing. I don't know if you've seen that or not, but that's changing. It's different. But here's what's happening. Here's what you need to notice is that our identity is not there. It's in Christ. It's in Christ alone. The only blood we, or the only red we should wear is the red blood of Jesus Christ. We make no allegiances to any political party. But now look at what's being tied to the church. What's being tied to the church, because the church has for too long tied itself to a political party, now racism and white supremacy is being tied to the church because of this cultural right, this cultural conservatism garbage that isn't gospel, that isn't the Bible. So what's happening is now, because all of this in our country, the church... The cultural right, all of that is, is tied and kind of lumped together. Now, the name of Jesus is being trampled on in the middle for the cause of racism, just furthest from Christ's desire and love for his people. You see what happens when the error that our identity is wrapped up in cultural things like republicanism and such? The name of Christ. Here's a couple dangers. A couple dangers. One is this. The dangers that we begin to believe that our identity is wrapped in these things and not Jesus. And then we begin to believe these other things that are working itself out of that, like racism. It's so amazing how many people see who call themselves Christians but will defend to the hilt every single thing that certain political leaders do. Listen, your identity is not wrapped up in him or her. It's in Jesus. Defend him if you're going to defend anybody. But then another danger here is that the culture again begins to think that, that we're linked together with all these other things done in the name of conservatism. Listen, you have to understand, like, those terms today mean something different. They don't mean the same thing they did in the 50s and the 60s. Church, our identity, again, is in nothing other than Jesus Christ. And this, countrywide, is an error that has been thrown upon the church of Jesus Christ and has been willingly embraced. We must fight to protect the name of Christ in our culture. Listen, if we do not condemn things done in the name of Jesus that come straight from the pit of hell, then two things. The culture might begin to believe it's true of Jesus, and we might begin to believe these lies in our own hearts. We have to be careful, articulate, wise, humble. Just an example of how... Our elders to be watchful of the church. Here's what you have. Here's what's happened. Elders have not been watchful of the church. And churches have not followed their watchful elders. And we have now a culture where Christianity and all of this other garbage are linked together in one big group of people. Elders have not done a good job of maintaining the boundary markers around the people of God. And sheep have wanted to jump outside of the boundary markers where they have been set. 
The elders would be watchful of error thrown upon the church. Two, elders are watchful for deceitful behavior in the church. Elders are to be watchful for deceitful behavior in the church. In 3 John, you have Diotrephes who had grabbed the leadership reins of a church as something like a dictator. Okay? Go read 3 John. He was power hungry and self seeking. He deceptively sought to get people to follow him, he wanted them to be on his side. One, reader, or one writer said he might have masked his motives with orthodox words, good motives, maybe even love, supposed love for other people. But he was self-centered and full of pride, seeking to use the church and his friends to fulfill his own lust for power. Deceitful behavior in the church. The Apostle John, here's what the Apostle John did. He exposed this deceitful behavior and he called the church to resist it. I mean, look at the letter. He even names him publicly via a letter. That guy. Don't have anything to do with him. He's evil. Oh, but we don't want to offend so-and-so, or we don't want to hurt their feelings. Listen, John's actions and... Even how he treated this, he's protecting the body. He's protecting it from deceitful behavior. This is what elders must do. They must expose deceitful behavior. The thing that breaks my heart is that sometimes people believe the deceit even amidst God's sovereign warnings through his chosen leaders. Elders are to be watchful for deceitful behavior in the church. Number three, elders are watchful of divisive behavior in the church. One author said this, spiritual leaders must stand firmly against divisiveness by rebuking, admonishing, and leading the way in exercising church discipline. Leaders arrest such rending of the church. He goes on, reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. Paul instructed Titus. None of these, he goes on, none of these things are popular measures in a church, but that is the work of the elders. Referring to Titus 3 there. Going on, I would encourage you like, to watch even in these things. Like, if elders are being watchful of these things, like divisive behavior, deceitful behavior, for error thrown upon the church, observe, watch. And as long as it's godly, then it would be valuable and wise to do likewise. Now, let me give you a few practical examples. A few practical ways that the church hinders or even rejects the watchfulness of elders. Okay? Let me give you some practicals. I'm going to press in, so if you feel like your toes have been stepped on, I'm, I'm going to put on some weight now. Practical ways the church hinders and even rejects the watchfulness of elders. I have four, very quickly here. First one is this. Simply not heeding the wisdom and direction. Like, I'm going to stiffen my neck and do what I want. Again, realize what we're saying. I don't trust Christ's priestly ministry through the elders he has placed over me. I'm going to stiffen my neck. I'm going to do what I want. Second example. Informing of a decision rather than humbly asking the elders to help you in that decision. I was so blessed. I was so blessed. 
three weeks ago, four weeks ago, this person will know I am talking about them, called me saying, I need your help in making a decision. And I said, and I, th- I think out of wisdom, <laughs> uh, I said, I, I, I'm just going to ask you a question. Do you want me to affirm a decision you've already made? Are you looking for affirmation? Or are you looking for counsel? Are you looking for help to make this decision? Uh, by God's grace, the person said, I, I want help. I want help. What, what's, he, what's, what's he saying? He's saying that I want the priestliness of Christ to be exercised in my life. I want him, through you, my pastor, to give me guidance, to help me see the word, to help me search the depths of my heart, to help me see if there is any sin that has entangled me. That's what he was saying. That's incredible. Listen, when you come with your mind already made up, you have effectively cut the legs out from under any priestly watchfulness over your life. You have said, I don't need Christ's priestly. I am good on my own. But here's what happens often. Is that come, right, come, sit across the table, already having their mind made up, and then I, because I'm watchful for their lives, will say something, Right? We'll say, well, have you thought about this? Well, I don't know if you're seeing that clearly. You know what happens? This is from my observation. Most of the time, people become what Hebrew or what the Proverbs call scoffers. Rejecting righteousness and wisdom. Why? Because what's happened? You become committed. Your identity is being wrapped up in that decision. And now any attack on that decision is seen as an attack on yourself. Instead as loving care, trying to save you from maybe something that's either unwise or maybe even destructive to your life or to those around you. If you go read, it was been a very valuable passage to me in uh, Proverbs. What happens when people become scoffers, they start inflicting injury to those around them. So informing of a decision, rather than asking, like humbly saying, help me work through this. Help me think through this. Do you want watchfulness or not? Number three, not utilizing all the graces in your local body. Again, I'm just pushing in very practically here. This is super practical. Like, and this is getting at the motive rather than just a law. Nothing profound. Making sure to listen well to the teaching in this church. Sermons, etc., Do you understand that your elders exercise lots of watchfulness through preaching? Lots of it. Lots of watchfulness. And so when you don't take advantage of that, when you don't steward that resource well, you're saying, I don't need watchfulness. I'm good on my own. I think the scriptures would call you a fool. Also, let me encourage you this way uh, as well, just since we're on this, on this point. Like listening well. Not listening, like if you have to serve, in, or if you get to serve in children's ministry, that the, do you see what I did? I caught my, what I said there. Uh, but if you need to listen to the sermon later on in the week, that you don't do it while you're also doing something else. But you sit with your word in front of you so you can concentrate and listen, maybe even take notes, because now you can pause and write things down. Now you can pause and take captive the thought that hit your mind and, and do something with it. 
again, do we want watchfulness or can we just watch over ourselves? Number four, not willing to be led through hard conversations. So many times people sit across the table from me with some sort of issue and they in pride are not willing to let me lead the time trusting that we will make our way to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Most often they already have it figured out and want to lead me. This, that's not healthy. That's not, that's not the way God designed it. God's designed to give us care. Listen, when I sit down with someone and I try as long as God would grant me humility, sit down and I'm trying to work through an issue, whether it's with Rusty or Greg or uh, pastor friends of mine, and, and just go, all right, you lead the conversation. You lead me. You help me probe my heart. You help me see if there is any sin that has entangled the way I'm viewing this situation. Because the reality is I'm probably blind to it. Listen, shepherd leads sheep, not the other way around. See, again, I want to point you back. In all of these examples, it's not simply that people don't know how to interact with elders. It's that they are not living out the implications and the application of Christ's priestly ministry through elders. So again, practical ways that the, the, the body, that sheep hinder and even reject the watchfulness of elders. We're underneath this kind of category here of elders faithfully exercising God's authoritative care. The first one was God's authoritative care is watchful. Excuse me. The second was that elders are watchful for deceitful behavior in uh, well, God's authoritative care is watchful. And then we gave three examples of that. And then some practical ways that we reject or hinder this watchfulness. But now a second aspect of elders and their care for the body is that elders or God's authoritative care through elders is accountable. It's accountable. The second part of verse 17, it says this, For they are keeping watch over your souls... As those who will give an account. As those who will give an account. Listen, this is for me personally, I know for Russ, I know for Greg, it's one of the most weighty passages in the Bible for us personally. Listen, church leaders will give an account to two parties. To two parties. They give an account of their ministry to their churches. Church, you should expect us to be faithful and diligent. You should expect that. Just to be morally pure. To, to be repentant in our walks. To faithfully discharge the duties of the office. You should expect that. But then number two, we will give an account on the day before the Lord in judgment. It's a theme all throughout the New Testament. We will give an account for how we discharged our responsibilities. We must live and serve as those who will answer to the Lord of the church for our ministries. I would encourage you, unless your elders are sinning, trust them. God will hold them accountable. In fact, he's better at doing that than even you or I. Number three, so God's authoritative care is accountable. God's authoritative care is serious. God's authoritative care is serious. There's more to the office than simply a title. The reality is there's more to the relationship between sheep and a shepherd than just simply being a member. There's a seriousness to the office. A seriousness of conduct. 
feeling the weight of accountability and the seriousness of their offices, a church leader cannot help but ask for prayer for his conduct. Look at verse 18. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. Listen, they know, your elders know, the elders should know, a good elder knows that they have weaknesses and that Satan would love to exploit those weaknesses. And so they ask for prayer. They know also that they get tired and would sometimes sometimes rather give up the responsibilities of pastoral ministry and serve with lesser responsibilities. So they ask for prayer. Obviously, I would do the same. So God's authoritative care is serious. Now the reality is, is this is just a fraction of what Christ's priestly ministry looks like. But nevertheless, it is a part and a big portion of that priestly ministry. The author is simply showing us that someone who understands the priestly ministry of Christ will not only be willing to trust and follow elders, but will do it wholly and joyfully. You see, the flock must trust and follow God's authoritative care via elders. Listen, this doesn't, this doesn't work out too well when it's one-sided. A flock must trust and follow God's authoritative care via elders. Someone said this, faithful leaders must also have faithful congregations or else their labors will be filled with grief rather than with joy. And we know from that passage as well that, and that is of no advantage to the flock. He goes on, says the church cannot exist with selfish individualism, which is the breeding ground for division. Let me ask you a very practical question. When we make decisions, do we make decisions considering other people? With other people in mind? A lot of times, honestly, when I sit across the table from someone who's made a decision, that's the one of the first things that come up. Who did you consider when making this decision? This individualism, the the fact that I'm just on my own, or even that it's just me and my family, like, is is a lie. It's, it's, It's not healthy. It's not biblical. It's the body. And we're all members of the body. And, and, and we're not created to... Guys, go back to the garden. Adam and Eve were meant to live underneath God's leadership. Eve was meant to live underneath Adam's leadership. And what happened? At the root, like at the root of our plight, what happens? We're good on our own. What was going on? Individualism. I'm good by myself. The church is not meant to function that way. We're all supposed to, again, another argument for a plurality of elders rather than a single pastor is that I, myself, I'm not meant to live apart from being dependent on other people and other pastors. All right, so here's the question. Practically, what does this look like for the flock? What does this look like to trust and follow according to Hebrews 13? You see, the New Testament clearly shows that God's plan was to place the church under the gracious, merciful care of elders. And shepherds lead, and the members of the church follow. So what does that look like? Let me give you a handful of, of imperatives here. First one is this. Follow God's authoritative care by valuing obedience and submission as a joyful responsibility. Okay? God's not after just do what you're told. That's a lie. That's unhealthy. That's sinful. Don't just do what you're told. 
What God is after here is our valuing this relationship, our valuing obedience and submission as a joyful responsibility, as a joyful opportunity, if you will. 1317, he says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Now listen, this is perhaps, for many of us, some of the most difficult words in the Scriptures. Obey, submit. Listen, we have, we have such evil, tainted pictures of these words. We don't understand what these words mean from a biblical perspective. We think of wicked slave owner cracking his whip when we think about obedience and submission. But such a picture is foreign to the meaning of this verse. That's not what he has in mind here. And I just, I hate it. I hate it. That's what's been painted. It's been painted by evil men, evil leaders, evil followers. It's been painted that way. That's not God's intention. That's not God's plan. That's not God's model through His Son, Jesus Christ. So how should the church respond to those who keep watch over their souls? Again, there's two options. A church can obey and submit, or it can stiffen and rebel. There's no middle ground. Apathy is simply rebellion. One author I read said, sadly, in this context, most churches are characterized by individualism and narcissism. Whether it's popular or not, God has sovereignly designed His churches to work by a plurality of leaders and faithful members who value obedience and submission as a joyful responsibility. This is God's kind design for us. Let's get a little nerdy for a second. Obey and submit. They're both present imperatives, showing a a constancy, like it's an ongoing reality. It's something that's continuing. Now listen, hear me clearly. This doesn't mean that you become followers of Pastor Matt or Pastor Rusty or Greg or any other mere man. Rather, you are to follow your leaders as long as they follow the Word. They are tied to the Word. Their authority is tied to the Word of God. One time was working through with someone, they said, well, well, you can't show me in the Scripture where it says that. I said, well, word for word, you're right. But what is the Bible implying over here? Or what are these, what's the picture these verses are painting? My point in giving you that story is to say that, understand that the application of the Word, you may not see it, but they're meant to help you see it. Again, this means more, though, than just simply doctrine, but living the doctrine out as well. What's it, what's it look like to apply it? Again, this passage is not giving absolute authority to the elders. He's not saying that the elders can, can come in and tell you every detail and dictate everything of your life. It's not what he's saying. That belongs to the Lord. Not you. Not me. So again, what does it look like? Trying to, trying to put some flesh on these bones. These verses command obedience and submission in the realm, particularly of church and spiritual life. Let me give you some practical examples. This doesn't give, this passage doesn't give elders authority over such things as whether you buy a 3,000 square foot house or a 15, uh, 3,000, or I was going to say 15,000, well, if that's, that, could, that could work in the example too, but 3,000 or a 1,500 square foot house, or whether you should eat a cheeseburger or a burger with kale on it. I did have kale for dinner last night. 
it was mixed in with a whole bunch of dressing, and I couldn't taste a lick of it. <laughs> and there's Brussels sprouts in it, too. Anyways, it was a good salad. Or whether you go on vacation or do a staycation or whatever the case is, however, elders are here to protect you and to help your spiritual life. So, can we give you examples? If you were to take your tithe that belongs to God and use it to pay for your bigger house or your vacation, you could be sinning. So, so that's where you go, okay, so I, I, I can't, like, my authority, I can give you wisdom on whether to buy this house or this house, but I can also tell you that the scriptures say that if you choose to do that and it costs this over here, your faithfulness in this area of life, you're now sinning. Another example, if you fail in caring for your body and don't eat your kale like you should, then it could be a stewardship of the body issue, which is a sin issue, right? Okay. So again, what does this look like? Tell you to buy this car or that car? Again, we could command if there's a sin issue involved. There's clear biblical warrant. Other than that, it's wisdom. So if you want to buy this car and not that car, and you say, hey, like, they're in similar price range. What do you think? Oh, well, man, I don't know anything about those cars, but if you want to talk about trucks, I can help you out there. It's just wisdom. It's just wisdom. All right, continuing on. So we may exhort you in godly wisdom, but we, don't, we cannot, according to this passage, assert control. We don't have control of those things. We can't go make you. You have to do this versus this. Now, in the church life, in the way we do things as a church, we do have control over those things. That's not without caveat, but anyways, moving on. If you're trying to find, let me stop for a second. Listen. If you're, right now, if in your mind you're trying to find out just what you can do on your own and don't have to submit, if that's what's going through your heart, if you're kind of going like, okay, so where can I, I can kind of draw the line like this and like that, and okay, watch it. Maybe your heart's already in the wrong place. Just, just a warning. I'm just trying to be watchful for your soul, for your heart right now. If you see God's goodness in such protection, one person said, and you see it, his goodness and such help, then a joyful submission and obedience will follow naturally. Like it'll come. If you see God's design, see God's goodness, and the, the, the way to, to see that goodness is going to be to get over the hump of self-sufficiency and pride. We live in a culture, right, where it's, it's all about, I can do this. I can do this on my own. I got this. I got to figure it out. I'm a self-made person. You, you won't see the goodness in this. That will block it. All right, so, follow God's authoritative care by valuing obedience and submission as a joyful responsibility. Next one, follow God's authoritative care by actively persuading your heart and mind toward obedience actively persuading your heart and mind toward obedience a number of years ago i had someone come to me i think i referenced this passage i had someone come to me after service and said that they'd done a word study on the word obey here. And that the word pathos means to persuade. Therefore, the conclusion was, you as a leader must be persuasive in my life. Now, okay. I, I think there's other parts of the Bible where leaders being persuasive with the word 
is a value and is something that's good. That's not what's being taught in this passage. That's not what's, the, the passage is not saying, like, that the elders need to be persuasive so that you will obey. Like, it's not, that's not what's going on. Indeed, as I study this passage, the reality is, is that the word, the phrase there really means to persuade one's self to obedience. To persuade yourself to follow. Listen, the, the voice, you know, we have active and passive. And in Greek, they have a middle voice. And the middle voice is the idea of doing the action to yourself. So here's the idea. You all convince yourself to follow in obedience. That's the thrust of this passage. That's the, the weight of what's going on here in Hebrews chapter 13. You say, well, what convincing? Your mind and heart. Lots of the heart. Lots of the mind. Your heart is not going to want to obey naturally. Right? Look back to the garden. Your heart needs convincing, needs persuading. It is prone to wander. Listen, your default, for most of us, most of our default is going to be to do what we want to do. Period. And even if we say we want to do what someone else wants us to do, it's because that somehow brings us pleasure, which is ultimately us just doing what we want to do anyways. See, that's where the gospel is so important. This is an aside, but... It's where the gospel comes in and changes our hearts and changes our motives where we begin to want to obey. But the reality is, again, this works itself out practically in this plane. Again, this carries the idea, the idea of obey here, carries the idea of obediently following someone because you're trusting in God's work through that person's life. But just remember, don't forget this. Adam and Eve stopped trusting God. So the implication is this. The church hears the elders' teaching of the Word and sees the seriousness in following the teaching of Scripture, and so they obediently do likewise. All right, so follow God's authoritative care by actively persuading. Next, follow God's authoritative care by joyfully placing yourself under the care of elders. Here, here's where we, sh- again, another place we struggle. The idea of submission. We talked about this back. Go back and listen to the, the sermons in Ephesians. Like the idea of submission is not do what you're told. Not the picture of submission. Submission is a a willingly, joyfully placing yourself under someone else's authority, someone else's leadership. Humbly saying, will you lead me? What do you think is best? Help me apply the word of God in my life. This is a willing place. Listen, if you come in like to preaching on Sunday mornings and willfully and joyfully place yourself under, you will hear, you will experience so much of God's grace. So placing yourself under. It involves recognizing God's ordained authority and that He established in the church for order and for direction. So the congregation is to actively submit or place itself under the leadership of its spiritual leaders, complying with their direction and teaching. Remember, um, Alexander Strzok, if you know who that is, he said this, remember, submission to authority is often a test of our submission to God. So if you are willingly, joyfully wanting to place yourself in humble submission, you will find ways to be cared for. 
you'll find ways to enjoy God's grace in that relationship. Next, follow God's authoritative care by seeking the joy of your elders. Look at verse 17. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. If you really know and trust Christ's priestly work, you can and will seek the joy of your elders. That's the implication. Listen, I'm just going to be, again, this has kind of been a a raw series anyways, like just kind of laying, laying it out there. Elders, listen to this, elders face weighty responsibilities and demands. They're to help you understand the Word of God even when you don't want to. They're to help you apply it as they exemplify it. They're to give aid even when aid is often rejected. Right, the list goes on and on and on. And now the church, he says, is to let them do this with joy and not with grief. Listen, elders, elders should find their greatest delight in carrying out their weighty responsibilities. They should, they should if, if this is going on, if, if what he's talking about here, this picture is happening, then it should be a delight and not a burden. It should be a joy and not grieving, not grieving to them. John MacArthur said this, It is the responsibility of the church to help their leaders rule with joy and satisfaction. One way of doing this is through willing submission to their authority. The joy of our leaders in the Lord should be a motivation for submission. We are not to submit begrudgingly, or out of a feeling of compulsion, but willingly, so that our elders and pastors may experience joy in their work with us. A gladness to submit, a joyful response to the preaching of the word, a humble attitude, a seeking counsel, a wanting care, Those are all things that bring great joy to elders' lives as they carry out weighty responsibilities. A humble attitude in the members of the congregation is essential for elders to experience joy in their duties. Phil Newton says this, If someone is jealous of those in authority or wants a position at the table of authority, the joy of the spiritual leaders will be greatly reduced. Listen, End quote there, going on. Those who are resentful about being under authority will create division and strife. That's what happens. And those who don't want to let work, like who, who, who don't want the, the care and God's intention, it will bring great stress to you and great stress to your elders. Again, this is something that we must actively do. He's not just saying... Listen, he's not just saying this. Just stay out of your elders' hair. That's not what he's saying. Just, just stay out of their hair and let them have their way and everything will be peachy. That's not what he's saying. He's saying to seek their joy. What brings a joy to an elder? You following Jesus. In increasing measure. Growing in humility and love, patience, kindness, gentleness. You working, taking what you've been equipped with and working through your sin. It brings great joy to an elder. I want to be careful that we don't just appeal to selfishness. But in the text, he says, realize that this would be of no advantage to you to do otherwise. 
But he's not just saying, like, make it a joy for them. What he's saying is that the obedience and the submission, that all of this, that if you don't do this, it would be of no advantage to you. You will very effectively reduce the ability of those watching over your souls. So, follow God's authoritative care by seeking the joy of your elders and follow God's authoritative care by praying for your elders. Verse 18, pray for us. For we are sure we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. Spiritual leaders need the church and its prayers. Phil Newton said this, pray for their Christian walks and discipline. Prayer for their roles as husbands and fathers. Pray for their grasp and understanding of the word. Pray for their preaching and teaching of the word. Pray for their times of counseling and witnessing, as well as for the times of direction giving and decision making. Pray that in the end we might all serve Christ together with joy to His glory alone. Let me read to you from Hebrews chapter 4. He says this. I want you to go there with me. Chapter 4, a few pages to the left. Verse 18. I'm sorry, verse 14. He says this, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It's the theme of Hebrews, the, the theme of this book. All of Hebrews is about this man named Jesus, this great Son of God descending to the earth, experiencing life with us, temptation and sorrow, that He defeats death paying the punishment for the sins of his soon-to-be-gathered sheep. And now, he sits at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf. He says to the Father, this is my brother, this is my sister, my blood has covered them. They are welcome in this family. He says to us, here, child, here, this is what's going on in your heart. This is where you're struggling. Here are my words. This is how you follow me. Let me care for you. Let me guide you. Let me protect you. Let me, let me provide for you. Let me lead you. Trust me. This is his priestly role for all of us. And now the author of Hebrews says, if you believe the gospel if you believe the priestly work of Christ, then you can and will in increasing measure joyfully and willingly obey and submit to the spiritual leaders that I have placed in your lives. It's as if Jesus is saying, these are some of my hands and my feet to to lead you, protect you, and watch over you. Persuade your heart and mind to joyfully obey and submit and follow. Let's pray. Father, you have not left us to our own. Father, even through the wilderness, With the Israelites, you sent Moses and Aaron and eventually others to lead your people, to protect them, to guide them, to provide for your people through them.
And Father, there in that picture, we see imperfect men leading. We see a man who didn't even get to enter into the promised land because of his sinfulness. And you see a people, a stiff-necked people, who resisted your care through Moses. But Father, now, today, we have hearts that have the law written on them. And we have the blood of Jesus that covers and We have hearts that desire glory, that desire goodness, that desire you above all things, above all else. But not all the time. We need your help. Father, this relationship, this your means and intention to care for us in this way is so awesome and amazing if our sin would just get out of the way. I pray that you would continue to slay the sin in the elders' lives who lead this church. You'd continue to make us more in the image of your son Jesus that we might lead more effectively. And Father, I pray for the flock here that they would increasingly, through the power of the Spirit and the resurrection of your son Jesus, see their sins slayed as well. That we might experience more of your priestly ministry in this church. Uh, for it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.